Good morning. All right, so let's see here. All right, so that's the title of the message, Ocean Living. Uh, the, the text today is 2 Timothy chapter 4. And since you know, the ocean theme, there's water on there. I just wanted to point that out. Um, so we've all heard the expression, famous last words, and we're going to be looking at some of Paul's um, last words today. So I wanted to start by... Um, showing some famous people's last words and seeing if if you could guess them. I think Stuart used to have somebody he worked with that always said famous last words, didn't he? Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, those aren't on here. But um, I'll start with the first one. Now, um, there's probably not really any way to connect these statements to the people that said them, so I'm going to move through this pretty quickly. Um, plus, I have at least two hours of material to get to, so I don't want to prolong that anymore. So I'm bored with it all. Who said that one? All right, no guesses. That was Winston Churchill. Uh, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Yeah, that's right, Elvis. Elvis. If you know how Elvis died, then then that one kind of helps, or that helps in figuring that out. I'm losing. This one doesn't really make any sense, but it's Frank Sinatra. Um, I like this one. At 50, everyone has the face he deserves. That's an interesting thing to say as you leave the world, but um, that was George Orwell. Um, a party. Let's have a party. That's Margaret Sanger. So there were probably some people who wanted to have a party. Uh, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. That was the great prognosticator Nostradamus, and he was right about that one. And uh, he got that one right. Money can't buy life. That was Bob Marley. And this last one, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. This is from a guy who I wish had said way less. Earl Marks. Okay. All right. So enough of that. So the end of a person's life has a way of bringing a certain focus or perspective. If we know that we don't have much longer, it may motivate us to concentrate on what's important. Uh, we're sometimes interested to hear a person's last words. I think we hear, expect to hear something profound or revealing. And if a person's on their way out, it seems logical that if they care about other people, they're going to want to share anything they figured out in this world that could be helpful to those they leave behind. So when we consider today's text, uh, I think that dynamic is present between Paul and Timothy. Paul knows that his time on earth will end soon, and um, the letter he writes is to encourage and prepare Timothy for what's to come. If there was ever a person that we would want to consider their last words, uh, Paul would certainly be one of them. Uh, not only is he wise, but his words are inspired by God, and those words are written down. We can still read them. So they're left behind for us also. Um, so let me start by... Uh, looking at the text. The text is Second like, Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, 
fulfill your ministry for I am ready I am already excuse me I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come I have fought the good fight I have finished the course I have kept the faith in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing So in his parting advice, Paul reminds Timothy of his calling and appeals to him in the name of God to preach the word. It's a direct order. It's a mandate, a mandate from above. And it may be done to, to add certitude for Timothy um, and added assurance that he's fulfilling his purpose. And of course, the letter is addressed directly to Timothy, so we know it applies to him. But like many other things we read in the Bible, it has application beyond that. Now, we know that not everyone is a missionary or a preacher or an evangelist by vocation. That's not necessarily something we're all called to full-time. But we are instructed to share the gospel. The analogy I kind of think of when I imagine trying to get out of, of sharing the gospel or think this doesn't apply is we all know there are professional chefs, but just you don't have to be a professional chef to cook a meal. So we all have a role to play in sharing the gospel. We know that. And I talked about people's last words a few minutes ago. A few minutes ago, Some of Jesus' last words on this earth are what we call the Great Commission from Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those were his instructions to us. We're referred to as a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2.9. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're referred to as Christ's ambassadors. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So there are numerous there's numerous other examples. Now we understand that evangelism or, or missions take different forms. It can mean caring for the sick or building a place for the homeless to live or bringing food to the hungry and many other things. Uh, what Paul is Paul's addressing this to Timothy, so he's talking about someone who's called to, to preach the spoken word, to evangelize. So Paul tells Timothy he should be ready at all times, in season and out of season. That's probably because if Timothy is like us, the time would never be right. We can always come up with a reason why now is not a good time. Paul doesn't want Timothy trying to wait for that perfect moment that never comes. Then there are three specific things that Timothy's instructed to do when he's meeting with people. The first two are reprove and rebuke, which essentially mean the same thing. Uh, they both mean to reprimand or to warn. One de definition says it means to express strong disapproval or criticism because of the, their behavior or actions. And that's to be accompanied with exhortation, which means encouragement. So it's, it, this, these warnings, these reprimands are to be done with patience and encouragement. Discipline and correction are always hard. Um, it takes strength and certitude on the part of the person who's offering correction. It's uncomfortable. This is one of the reasons that Paul started these verses by offering Timothy assurance about his role and qualification for the job. And this is kind of a cliche, but, but we know that discipline is an act of love. It serves the purpose of connecting bad decisions and bad outcomes and teaches that disobedience has consequences. I talked about this, I think, a month or two ago in Sunday school. Discipline is a trade-off. The idea is that short-term measured amount of pain 
uh, outweighs or protects against severe long-term pain or destruction. So if a child's playing near the road, the parent's worried about him or wants him to stop, they administer some punishment. As long as it's done appropriately, it's painful, but it's not as painful as getting hit by a car. So it's to protect and preserve. And so if discipline's applied properly and consistently, the hope is that eventually the person receiving the punishment or the discipline or the correction adopts the viewpoint and understanding the person administering the discipline that they're nudged toward the right path. And that's how values are, are transferred sometimes is through discipline. And I know that's, that's obvious sometimes, but, but it's still overlooked. And, and the other thing to consider, if this is done in a cold, condescending, or detached way, it just feels cruel. And so that can lead to bitterness and rebellion. So if this is something that we have to do, even though we don't like to do it, it needs to be done um, in a measured and caring way. And so that's why Timothy's not to just simply criticize, but he's to show patience and offer instruction. So correction, instruction, and encouragement, that's important in daily life, and it's, it's that much more important when we're talking about things with earthly consequence. Or I'm sorry, with eternal consequence. The next issue that, or the next thing that Paul does is issues a warning about the, the, the people that Timothy's going to have to deal with. So in verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So in the future, Paul warns that people will avoid the truth and they're going to try to find people that are going to tell them what they want to hear. In one sense, this adds an urgency to Paul's instructions. It seems like maybe in the short term, people are still going to be receptive to sound doctrine. And so it could just mean that time is of the essence, that it's important to reach out now quickly to sow the seed while the ground is soft, and that may help establish a firm foundation and guard against the false teaching that will come later. Paul said to be always ready, and that might be the reason why. So Timothy will be dealing with people who don't want to hear his message. They'll seek out something they like better, something they want to hear. There are several false religions that Paul encounters and talks about in his letters. Um, some of them we hear about are Gnosticism and Judaizers, and there's the ever-present influence of uh, Greco and Roman philosophy and morals and, and polytheism. What we deal with now is similar. There are some organized religions like Islam and Buddhism. There are other philosophies like atheism and humanism. Uh, and there's also competing doctrines within Christianity. We also have what's called, um, or what I've heard referred to as a marketplace of ideas. Excuse me. We have access to a ton of information. We have ongoing communication with us, or with each other, almost all the time. And this can be helpful in a lot of ways. It can make fun, life easier or fun, but it also has a lot of downside, too. I'm a fan of capitalism. I think it's the least worst option, for sure. Uh, and I really like choices when it comes to things like cars or shirts or mac and cheese. And generics fine sometimes. Um, but when it comes to worldviews, the, the marketplace of ideas is a wild place. Now, I'm not saying we should suppress speech or ideas or limit access or anything like that. But we need to be aware that if someone has a belief of any kind, they can find a group in that marketplace of ideas on the internet and social media that will affirm it. 
So that makes it easier for someone to find a, 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 a teacher that's going to teach something that they want to hear. It seems like the underlying philosophy that's taken hold in our culture now is it's not wrong if it makes me happy. There's a desire within the human heart for meaning and belonging. The meaning of the life in the West has become the pursuit of happiness. And on my journey toward happiness, if anyone doesn't offer validation, they're a hater. We hear things like, you only live once, YOLO. Uh, you do you. The present moment we live in and, our, and the self is really all that matters. Now, I don't think the people who feel that way necessarily do that as a matter of defiance or rebellion, but it can turn into that. I think it's more confusion and feeling adrift and no reliable point of reference. It's a desperate surge. I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to, to find and live my truth, live my best life now. The rebellion and hostility come when people are told that, about an objective truth, that the idea of just an objective truth by itself is, is objectionable. The idea that something is false or wrong is considered hateful. The idea that there's potentially a punishment for the decisions and behavior that someone is engaged in makes them furious because based on everything that every institution in our society tells them it's hateful to be critical of anyone for anything there's nothing worse than being judgmental in second timothy chapter 3 the chapter right before the the verses we i just read um, paul describes what people will be like in the last days and he lifts off an awful list of of sins in which people will be involved. And the very first one is lovers of self. And we've, I, I kind of feel bad saying this, but it seems as though we've almost institu institutionalized the love of self as a national identity. In a culture and time that celebrates self-love, repentance doesn't make any sense to people. That's why they're not receptive to, to Christianity, one of the reasons. So consider this, if repentance is often hard, or repentance is often hard, so if my self-esteem is really the most important thing, how am I supposed to cope with the idea that my very best effort falls short? If I'm taught that loving myself is important, how can I understand the idea that my self-love will separate me from God? That's what we deal with. And we can sometimes dismiss this or roll our eyes or we hear the term snowflake sometimes. And I get that. Uh, people say these, these young people can't handle anything said every old person ever and and there's some truth to that um, but this isn't just about young people these ideas aren't just college students or high school this is an idea that that um, permeates and transcends various ages and by the way we all have that residue on us especially young and vibrant people like me <laughs> to think we're imp to think we're impervious to these attitudes is to deceive ourselves even if we aren't so heavily stained by the influence of our culture, we still need to have empathy, and we want to understand people and help people. We want to reach out to people in love. And we should, be, we should remember that it's, it's possible to be overly emphatic or aggressive about sin. That can be presented in a harsh, unloving way, and we shouldn't do that. But the message we have is a message of love and hope. Forgiveness is an incomparable concept. If sin is something that you're struggling with or if someone's pointing out that you're living in sin, there's no better news than forgiveness. The idea that a perfect holy God would intercede, would send his, his Son as God in human form, 
to suffer torture and mockery and crucifixion in our place, to rescue us from the eternal punishment that we deserve, and instead impute the righteousness of his perfect son to us, and welcome us into eternal paradise together with him as the best news in the history of the world. It should be a strong encouragement and offer hope where there's none to be found otherwise. So the person, for the person who's seeking, there's really nothing, there's no better news. That the Almighty Creator cares about us, and because of the love and intercession of His Son, He withholds from us the punishment we've earned and grants us a gift of salvation in His place. And that should bring us to a place of humility and thankfulness. He knows our problems and suffering. He's with us through these things and offers a peace beyond our understanding. We also must be open and direct about what sin is and where it leads. We have to be honest about the cost and sacrifice of following Christ. Repentance is not optional, and repentance is both a cost and a reward. And I'm trying to be helpful. I'm no expert on, on reaching lost people. There are people among us uh, who are more qualified to speak about this than me, but I know it's not easy. What we absolutely can't do is modify the truth of the gospel to appear, or I'm sorry, to appeal to our audience. Paul was all things to all people, but he did not compromise the truth. Derek talked earlier about um, you don't have to have all the answers, and that's very true. You know, we we may mess things up sometimes. I've, I've probably messed up a few times already, but there's a difference between not knowing the answer and changing the message to appease someone. So there's a difference between a well-tailored message and a compromised, diluted message. We tell people about the love of Christ and eternal life, but we also have to talk about the cost. And we can't control what people want to hear or how the message we're offering is received, but we're responsible for what we tell people, and the truth is the only option. One last thing before I move on. Um, I want to sneak this in. I only address one of the many things that that people struggle with that can interfere with how we receive teaching. And there's a lot of others, and we can't cover them all. But I was talking to Houston this morning, and he reminded me of another one. So if you don't like this, he's, he's sitting right over there. Uh, I think it's important, and it hits close to home. Um, we have to be careful about intermingling politics with doctrine. Now, I know that moral issues are part of both. And I'm not saying that we should keep Christianity out of politics but we need to be careful about bringing politics into Christianity. It can cause sort of a synchronism that can muddy the waters. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so returning to the text of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says in verse 4 that people turn away from the truth and turn towards myths. And that makes sense if you consider what I just talked about. We need something to provide purpose and meaning, so if the truth doesn't suit, then we've got to come up with something else. Now, myths as we think of them are usually similar to fairy tales or fantasies, and we associate myths with the ancient world. Um, in the deep language study I did this week, I found out that, that the word myth translates to mythos. So the word, Greek word for myth is basically myth, so I like that. Um, and it means fable or an invention or a falsehood. Um, and I think we'd like to believe that we've moved beyond myths. Uh, we're way too educated and sophisticated for that, uh, but we haven't. We have things, I mentioned this earlier, like finding your own truth. We're encouraged to create our own reality. And if anyone questions my truth, they're hateful and intolerant. The notion of any objective truth or reality is offensive and archaic, 
and it's said to be a tool that's used by the patriarchy to oppress people. Now, I've never really heard what to do or, or how you're supposed to handle it if, if my truth runs up against your truth. So if they don't match up or they come into conflict, I guess we, we make something up on the spot or, or start hitting each other or, or um, you know, just pretend the other person isn't there. I'm not sure how you resolve that. In fact, if, if that's the case, I'm not sure why we'd even need to listen to each other at all. What may be true for you may not be true for me. How is your truth relevant to mine? Maybe I don't exist at all in your reality. That makes communication challenging. If you think I'm exaggerating, you haven't been paying attention. Let's look at one of the other ways which we've evolved. I heard this story in a podcast and I meant to check to make sure that it wasn't just actually some kind of trolling or something, but I I looked it up and it was reported in several papers and you know that means it's gotta be true. So I'm gonna read this article. Now we think about mythological creatures and all sorts of fantastical things that are in myths. So this article talks about a minotaur. A minotaur has the the head of a bull and the body of a man. Um, some of you might have heard this. A chief psychologist at a California children's hospital has claimed that children can identify as gender minotaurs. Dr. Diane Aronsaft is the director of mental health and chief psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco, Benioff's Children's Hospital Gender Development Center. Her research focuses on the effect of puberty blockers and hormones in children. First reported by Fox News, Aaron Soft has made the claim that children can identify as gender hybrids, which include gender minotaur. The minotaur in Greek mythology, and I, I already told you this, head of a bull, body of a man, in a list of terms published by Aaron Seft in a paper titled Gender Affirmative Model, she refers to different ways in which children have described themselves. One of these include gender minotaur, which is described is being described as a, a descriptor for a child who sees themselves as one gender on top and another on their bottom half. Other claims made by the psychologist include what she describes as a gender Prius. This label is said to have been explained to her by a child who looked like a boy in the front but had a braid and a pink bow in the back. According to the paper, the child said, you see I'm a Prius, a boy in the front and a girl in the back, a hybrid. Another term is a gender smoothie which is described as a variation of being gender fluid. One teenager described it to Aaron Saft as, you take everything about gender, throw it in a blender, press the button, and you've got me, a gender smoothie. Another term shared by Aaron Saft is a gender Tesla, which he described as a transgender state some children reach after being a gender hybrid. <clears throat> so you can see that we've come up with some of our own ideas there. Uh, this woman is a chief psychologist at a children's hospital, um, so she's in a position to do great harm. Um, and so we haven't really moved all that far past myths. When we decide the truth doesn't work for us, we come up with our own version, and that's not working out that well. So in verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul tells Timothy to endure suffering, which implies there will be suffering, that Timothy is embarking, or what Timothy is embarking on will come with hardships of all sorts, and I would have to think that this advice would be well received coming from Paul. Paul's certainly familiar with suffering, and he's certainly familiar with what he's asking of Timothy. Paul has been faithful through all sorts of hardship himself. He's writing from prison, 
and he'll soon be martyred for his faith and work as a missionary. Earlier I said that we shouldn't promise people easy lives if they follow Christ. Paul's words to Timothy illustrate why. If you look in John 15, it speaks to this directly. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, <clears throat> but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus tells his disciples directly that they'll suffer for following him and preaching the truth. Paul's affirming to Timothy that this work as an evangelist is his rightful purpose. He encourages Timothy to remain sober, which means calm, <coughs> excuse me, and complete the purpose to which he was called. And at that very moment, Paul was modeling the completed work of a missionary. In verse 6, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's making it known that he's not going to be released, and he won't be allowed to live much longer. The comparison to a drink offering is interesting and encouraging. A drink offering was given to Moses after God said that the Israelites would be required to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. The drink offering was seen as a promise of eventual victory and settlement in the promised land. The drink offering was never to be offered except in the promised land. It was a sign of entering into rest. So this is an assurance to readers that Paul's death is not a divine judgment, but rather the completion of Paul's work and his entry into God's promised rest. In verse 7, Paul continues, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. He draws on two analogies to describe his life's work. The first is fighting the good fight. This seems to just simply mean or simply be a metaphor for overcoming obstacles. Um, the obstacles of life to accomplish uh, his God-ordained purpose in his ministry. And there are clearly battles in earthly suffering. Paul fought the good fight. In his battles, he did not besmirch the name of God. He didn't do damage to God's reputation. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says he didn't battle aimlessly like someone boxing against the air. There was purpose and there was self-discipline. He says that he's finished the course. The course, or race in some translations, can be taken to mean life. We know that Paul also used the analogy of a race before. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 24, <clears throat> Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Another well-known reference to running a race is found in Hebrews 12. We don't know sure if, for sure if Paul wrote that, but he might have. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which cling so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As Paul starts to talk about the end of his life, <clears throat> um, and we don't really know how close it is because he's, it sounds like it's imminent, but he's also asking Timothy to visit and bring certain things. So um, it may be a few minutes or a few months. Paul's no, Paul knows his time is short, and he's basically saying he knows he's not going to be released. So the analogy of the race is an, is an interesting one. We're all in a race of sorts. We all reach the finish line eventually, and there are different kinds of, of races, distance, sprints, relays, hurdles, and so on. The type of race that we're in determines how we approach it. Do we sprint right away, or do we pace ourselves? 
what we believe is at the finish line has an influence on our race. If I believe that when I reach the finish line, and this is in um, more in metaphorical terms, if I believe what I race uh, when I win the, when I reach the finish line is basically nothing, they turn out the lights and that's it. I might be motivated to run my race a certain way or not be motivated at all. In that race, the best I can hope for is some type of earthly prize, and that fades away. If I believe there's an eternal reward, that should change my approach. So I want us to watch a video. Um, it's just a little over two minutes. Um, this is kind of a sappy video. I, we're not playing the audio, but there's music and everything. But it's a famous race from the 1992 Olympics. They play this all the time. Um, and it's been shown many times over the years. Most of you have probably seen it. The guy in the video is um, Derek Redmond. So I wanted to show it just because I, I kind of like the um, the analogy or metaphor that it shows. So if we could go ahead and, and play that. So you can see a pretty full stadium. It's the 92 Olympics. This is the 400-meter men's semifinal. It's the American. So, of course, Derek Redmond is the one that pulls up. He pulled a hamstring. That's the winner. And he's refusing to quit. He's continuing during the race, even though he knows there's nothing in it for him now as far as a reward. And you can't hear it, but the crowd is, is cheering. And so that's his father. His dad's telling him to get out of here. Get it. I got this. All right. You can see, of course, he's devastated. So that's an Olympic stadium. A lot of those hold close to 100,000 people. I don't know how many people were there. Um, maybe I should have played the audio, but... Um, there's a, a ton of applause and cheering for him as he finishes. He said, that's good. Thank you. So one of the things they teach athletes is to visualize a successful performance. Um, it helps with confidence and focus. That wouldn't have been the race that Derek Redmond would have visualized for himself that day. 
he worked for years to get to that moment. It was supposed to be the payoff of all his hard work. And since that was kind of the apex of, of his career and that happened, what was the point? And more than that, even if he won the gold medal, what comes next? There can be a certain emptiness that sets in after an achievement. I think I've told this story before, but there was a famous football player on the 91 the Super Bowl. He went back to his hotel room, he ordered an expensive sports car, and then he considered committing suicide. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about the race we're to run as one who wins the prize. He's talking about self-discipline, and he contrasts the prizes, the perishable with the imperishable. Paul also describes his reward in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We also just need to recognize that this eternal reward is not some accomplishment of Paul's. It's not because of something he did. He didn't work his way into heaven or, or to a reward. It was because of the, of the love of God and the redemption through Christ, the forgiveness of Paul's sins, and the imputed righteousness of the Savior. And it's interesting to consider that if the race had gone well for Derek Redmond, we probably would have never seen that race again. So if you didn't watch it then, if it had gone according to plan, Nobody would have ever really thought about it again. I don't know who won the 400. Everything okay back there? I don't know who won the 400 meter. So within our soul, uh, we're aware and appreciate that there are things that are greater than winning earthly rewards. The world even takes notice sometimes. That was the Olympic Games. People go there expecting to see something amazing or historic. It's not preschool t-ball. It's competitive. In that environment, a stadium, a stadium full of people were on their feet cheering for a guy who just finished last. There are two reasons that moment's captivating. The first was the runner's perseverance. It was his determination to finish even though things had gone badly. He was hurting and the outcome was not what he wanted, but he refused to quit. The second reason was a father's love for his son. The father was watching and came alongside his weakened, hurting, and devastated child and helped him to the finish line. We have a Heavenly Father like that. So I just want to close with a story that I heard in a movie about Paul's life. Uh, there's, this was something that was added. There's no evidence that Paul said this, but I, I like the analogy. Paul is talking to a Roman jailer, and he says to the jailer, Have you ever been sailing? And the jailer says, Yes. And Paul says, imagine yourself looking out at the vast sea before you. You reach down and you put a hand into the water and you scoop it up towards you. Immediately the water starts leaking through your fingers until the hand is empty. That water is a man's life. From birth to death it is always slipping through our hands until it is gone, along with everything that you hold dear in this world. And yet the kingdom I speak of that I live for is like the rest of the water out in the sea. Man lives for that cup of water that slips through his fingers, but those who follow Jesus Christ live for that endless expanse of sea. And that's the end of the quote. This is not to say that the things of this world don't matter. That cup of water came from the sea, and it will return to the sea. The question is, what is our focus? Are we living for that cup of water? Does our existence consist constantly of chasing a thrill or a thing or an experience? Those moments pass and the experiences end and stuff decays. There's nothing more than that. What's the point? There was an ad campaign in the 90s, I think, 
or maybe 2000s, there was t-shirts and it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. There was another t-shirt that came out as a retort to that and it said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. So are we living, are we living in faith with the promise of an endless ocean or just vainly watching water slip through our hands? There are a lot of lost and hurting people. We talked about that earlier. They're confused and scared. Society and most of our institutions have failed them. They're taught to blame their problems on people who have more than them. They're told that there is no such thing as objective truth. They can't even be sure of their gender anymore. They're told the earth is burning up and it's their fault. And if we don't do something about it, the planet won't be inhabitable for their children. That's not even to mention the various individual problems, pressures, and hardships they face as part of daily life. And in some cases, even the church may fail them. And that's also some of the concern I was talking about earlier. They're desperate, and the only solution some of them find is a needle or a gun to their head. Last year, over 49,000 people in the U.S. committed suicide, and that's the largest number since they started keeping track. People are watching water slip through their fingers. They have no hope. The church can't always fix all their problems or end their suffering, and we shouldn't promise that. But we can remind them that they aren't alone in their suffering, that there is hope beyond the problems of daily life. We can tell them that they're loved, that if they follow Christ and turn from their sin, there's redemption and peace. We can tell them about the imperishable prize that awaits them at the finish line because of what Christ has done. So I'll try not to mix metaphors as I close. But our race doesn't always turn out the way we want. Our Father is watching, and He's with us. And if we endure in faith and perseverance, we know that we have a crown of righteousness and eternal reward waiting for us. We don't just have a cup of water. We have a spring of water welling up to eternal life, an endless ocean. I'm going to close with prayer, and then I've asked... um, Anthony and Marvin, if they would lead us in a closing song, and they've kindly agreed to do that. So I'll pray, we'll do that, and then it'll be time to eat. So once we start, or once we're done singing, we're dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here together. We thank you for um, your promises and the hope that we have in a lost world. We pray that we would see beyond our our problems and um, and remember the eternal prize that we have because of what you've done. We pray that you would help us to be able to impart that hope to others, to be able to share that in a way that that turns their eyes to you and away from the things that are slipping through their fingers. We thank you for the food that you've blessed us with, and we pray for your blessing upon that. And I just pray that you would lead us as we continue into this next week, uh, that we would live to love and serve you. And we thank you for your, your grace and mercy and love for us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this song, I was in the Air Force, so I've chosen to close with a Navy song. Um, in, in keeping with a, a nautical theme, uh, it's, the name of the song is Eternal Father, Strong to Save. And um, I'll turn it over to Anthony and Marvin. Or just Anthony.